Hello, I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your anthropomorphic birds speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, The Ale House at the End of the World by Stephen Allred. And I'm very excited to talk about this book. And there are three reasons why I'm so excited. First, it's the most recent book I've done so far. And, and by decades, it's the most recent book, right? This book was published in 2018, which was basically yesterday. And second, this is a book from a small press. It's an indie book. And I want to support independent publishers and independent writers as much as possible. This show, so far at least, is a strange mix of classics, books I'm nostalgic about, and books you've never heard of by writers you have, so I don't know how often I'll actually do indie books, but it is something that I want to keep in mind, and, and I hope that will start showing up on the, the Patreon polls uh, sooner rather than later. And finally, and most importantly, this book was suggested to me by a longtime listener to several of the shows that we do, and a, a real early cheerleader of the network. And one of the things that I love most about podcasting, one of the things I got into it for, is building a community with people who listen to our shows and who read along with us. I was very excited for this recommendation. It's a really fun book. I'm excited to do this episode. So let's dig into The Ale House at the End of the World. This is a mythic fantasy story. Allred is going to draw on elements from various mythologies and folklores in order to tell his story, and he's going to blend them together and then pour in his own fantasy world into the mix. And if you've read, well, if any book by Neil Gaiman, then you've encountered this before. And it's a move that derives from Joseph Campbell, and Allred even writes about this in an author's note at the end, and I'll have some more to say about that in a, another segment. So this story doesn't take place in our world as it really exists, but there is a mortal world, an, an earth of sorts, that in some way resembles our 18th century as a, a fantasist might imagine it. And as I often like to do, I want to just read the opening paragraph here to give you a taste of the type of fairy tale language that Allred uses, and also to introduce us to our protagonist. The fisherman lived alone at the end of the sea, in a shack beneath the shade of the tallest shore pine for leagues, on a bluff above a shallow cove. All his days he had worked the sea, as a sailor and a carpenter, on ships both great and small, and as a fisherman, gill-netting for the fishmongers in the portside markets, or trailing a line from his skiff to feed only himself. He had sailed all the seven seas, and sailed seven more seas beyond those, and he had seen many things. Tattooed on his arms were the names of ships he had sailed, and of sailors with whom he had weathered storms and escaped from monsters of the deep. On his chest he bore the likeness of his beloved, her face covered over now with curls of gray hair. As we can see, this is a world that is simultaneously big and small. There's one bluff and one shallow cove, right? There's one hut and a lone fisherman. All of these are really just proper nouns. But there are seven seas and seven more seas beyond those. And there are monsters and an ominous invocation of many things. And I love this type of fairy tale world that is just a big world, almost kind of a big, fantastic, scary world, but yet there's still only one of everything that inhabits it. This is really one of my favorite literary tropes. But what's going to propel the action of this story here is this fisherman's beloved. 
The fisherman has been stranded on this island for several years, and so he's not been able to return to this woman he loves, as a really Odysseus story, just without Circe here. And the story begins when the fisherman receives a letter informing him that his beloved has died, but that she awaits him on the Isle of the Dead. And how he got the letter is a bit of a mystery, though we quickly switch point of view to an anthropomorphic frigate bird who carries a pistol and is something of a rapscallion and and a pirate and has dropped this letter as he flew over the island. Uh, The letter is not actually written by the beloved, as we will come to find out later. But for now, that doesn't matter. And, And what we should say right now is that this book is mostly about talking birds. Well, as far as the fisherman is concerned, now that he's got this letter, there is only one course of action. Set off for the Isle of the Dead. And he takes his very small fishing boat, just a a rowboat really, takes this boat out into the sea, and he's swallowed by a whale. And then later he wakes up on the shore of the Isle of the Dead. How this works is is totally irrelevant, right? He's here, he's crossed over from the material world without actually dying, and now he wants to find his beloved And as a character not from around these parts, the fisherman needs some instructing on how this world, the spirit world, functions. This is, of course, a common storytelling device to give readers some needed information, and it works really well here. And what we learn is that the Isle of the Dead is ruled by a raven. It's the raven, really, as this world is inhabited by what I guess, amounts to the platonic form of familiar earthly creatures. And so there is only the one raven here. But even though the raven is the king of the Isle of the Dead, this spirit world was long ago devoured by a monster called the Kiyama, and it now resides in his belly, in this monster's belly. Crossing over between the spirit world and the material world used to be easier, but now this extra barrier, this barrier of this monster's stomach, uh, this extra barrier makes it difficult. So even if the fisherman can find his beloved, getting back out with her will be nigh impossible. And if you're thinking of Orpheus and Eurydice here, you're on the right track. And so We're still really only in the first act of this story, and already we're drawing on Odysseus and uh, Orpheus and Eurydice here, drawing on a lot of Greek mythology. And of course, the raven is an important figure in most Native American religious mythologies, and especially in the Pacific Northwest, where Stephen Allred lives. Okay, but first, the fisherman has to find his beloved to begin with. And this, too, is difficult, because the dead are brought to the spirit world on canoes, And then their bodies are destroyed in a fire, and their souls are placed in clamshells. The spirit clams then spend years and years circling around from this side of the island, this beach, to the other side of the island, to another beach, at which point they will be reborn into the material world. They're they're, they're transported back to it. It's a sort of recycling of souls. But... What this means is that the soul of the fisherman's beloved is in an unremarkable clamshell among millions of unremarkable clamshells. So how can he find her? Here we get into the real plot of the book. There is a crow, the crow, of course, right? There's a crow who would like to supplant the raven as the ruler here, and he agrees to help the fisherman in exchange for learning how to create fire. The crow finds the soul of the beloved as they agreed, but 
that's it. That's all he does. He's no help in getting her soul into a body. So the fisherman is really only stuck here with a clamshell that's easily lost. It easily falls out of his pocket and he just has to protect it, to hold on to it and look for a way to get his beloved soul out of this clamshell and into a body so that he can interact with her. And the crow continues to make deals with the fisherman. He, he clearly knows more than he's letting on. And through these arrangements, the crow is able to kill and supplant the raven. Well, the, the fisherman stupidly doesn't pay any attention to the literal parameters of the bargains he's making. And so he gets barely anything from the crow in return. And of course, this is how we think of crows in even just watching them outside. We know that they're extremely clever, but we also find them kind of unsettling, right? We, we think that they're ominous. We think that they're evil. They're, they're tricksters, right? And this crow, the crow, once he's the ruler, he is a real tyrant of a ruler. He abuses his power and maltreats his former associates. And moreover, he is power hungry, and he wants to extend his power beyond the spirit world. He wants to take over. He wants to find a way to get into and conquer the material world and become the ruler of all things. Obviously, he must be stopped. And, and this is what the story is about, at least by the time we get about halfway through the book. The fisherman and some of his bird associates are, are going to overthrow the crow's rule, but they aren't alone in this. It seems that the fates themselves are concerned about the crow's ambitions, and they also want to stop him. We'll talk more about the fates in the next segment, but these are weavers, as we see them in, in Greek mythology and, and, and other mythologies as well. But they seem to have less control over the future than they do frequently in mythologies we're familiar with, and they require helpers. And so now we get another character who comes in from a neighboring realm, and this is the Javanese fertility goddess Devi Shri. And Allred really presents her here in her capacity as a fertility goddess, a sort of love and, and sex and desire goddess. We'll have more on that in a moment. But she is also a goddess of death in Javanese religion. And so she works here, right? She has a place in this world. Devi Shri is here because the fates have commissioned her to stop the crow, right? She is the, the help they've enlisted. And we learn that she was responsible for the letter that was the inciting incident of this whole story because the, the fates believe that the fisherman and his beloved will be important to the undoing of the crow. And because she is a, a fertility goddess, because she is a goddess of childbirth and life, Devi Shri is able to restore the beloved to her body. Really, what she does is grow a new body for her by breastfeeding the clam. But when the beloved is restored, she doesn't remember who she was. She has amnesia, basically. And so the fisherman still doesn't really have his beloved back. He, he has her soul, she's in a body, but she's not her really. But Devi Shri is really here to deal with the crow, and her plan is to seduce him, which should be easy for her since she is a, a sex goddess. And while she is spending time on the Isle of the Dead, she holds a, a sort of sex clinic for some of the resident women. And, and one of these is the newly reborn Beloved, and another is an anthropomorphic pelican. 
And Debbie Shree also teaches them how to change their form so that the pelican can resemble the beloved, and the beloved can resemble Debbie Shree, and so on. And these mortals, the, the pelican, the beloved, and so on, aren't supposed to use this power without the goddess's supervision. But of course, they do, and hilarity ensues as a result. And the, the the blurb on the back of the book, which is really quite a well-written blurb. It's one of the best blurbs I've ever read on the back of a book. The, the blurb describes this section as a body Shakespearean love triangle. And really, this is the perfect description for this chunk of the book. And, and actually, this makes up the bulk of the book. I shouldn't call it a, a, a chunk. I will say here, and we'll encounter this more as ATAS continues, that I'm a bit prudish. I, I don't really like sex scenes or sex jokes in my stories, even though I do love a good Shakespearean comedy. Uh, but even though this aspect, the, the sex scenes, the sex jokes, the, the bawdiness of this wasn't something that I would have asked for in a book, All Red does it quite well. This is good material. It, it's, it's funny. There is some real sexiness to it as well, if you're into that sort of thing. And all of these shenanigans, uh, these these cases of mistaken identities and body Shakespearean love triangles, all of this culminates with the beloved coming to love the fisherman anew just before it's time to blow this thing and go home. In the end, the crow is undone by his own narcissism and also by the courage of our heroes. There is a big battle at the end, and the fisherman and his beloved escape back to the material world. And this sounds like a happy ending, doesn't it? But it's not. Allred concludes the book with an epilogue that gives us several different versions of what happened when the fisherman and his beloved returned to the material world, but they all agree that the beloved did not survive the, the process of, of crossing over. She perhaps turned to ash as soon as she crossed the threshold, or perhaps was transformed into a god herself. But in any event, despite his heroic journey to the land of the dead, the fisherman remains in the material world alone, without his beloved, and all the tales agree that he settled somewhere and opened up a bar called the Ale House at the End of the World. And that's how the story closes, and so that brings our recap to an end here. So let's just move straight into themes and motifs, where I really want to talk about what Allred does with fate. Fate is all over this book, e even just the fifth paragraph of the book, as we are getting the inciting incident, invokes fate. Allred writes, Fate was calling to him, telling him to find his way back to the woman he loved. And on my first reading, I didn't think much of this line. It was cute, it was lover's talk, but this turns out to be literally true. This whole plot is set in motion by the gods of fate and destiny. As we've seen in the recap, these deities are weavers. This is something we're familiar with from Greek mythology, Norse mythology, and, and so on. But they function differently in this story. Allred's fates don't determine what happens. Uh, what they do instead is narrow the choices and then let the choices made determine the pattern that is woven. And so in this way, people have free will, even if there is some cosmic force that can see into the future and maybe play a hand in shaping that future. And in, indeed, the, the, the fates explain all of this when they are recruiting Devi Shri. They, they tell her that their weaving balances destiny and free will. It balances good and evil, and it balances the mutable and the immutable. 
And for them, the real danger of the crow is that he threatens to upset this balance by taking dominion over both the spirit world and the material world, which are things that need to be balanced, need to be contrasted, not be united. Well, I want to move on to another theme now. I want to talk about tyranny. The book's blurb, and and even the prologue to the story itself, emphasize that this is a book primarily about a ragtag band of heroes who overthrow a tyrant and save the world. And the blurb in particular wants to tie this theme to the political anxieties of our own day, or really the political anxieties of 2017 and 2018 when Allred was writing this book. But I found this rather wanting in the story itself. The crow is a real jerk, and he does not seem especially qualified to govern, or even interested in, in governing. He just wants to be in charge because he's a narcissist. But he's hardly evil on some kind of grand scale. He's not setting up death camps or establishing a slave system or even disenfranchising citizens or or anything that we might actually label a tyranny rather than just incompetent governance. I mean, to be fair, he does, of course, hatch a plot to take over the material world, but this fell flat for me. And for one, Allred doesn't introduce this plot until pretty late in the book, and by the time he does... I was even a little confused because up to this point, I'd thought I was in some kind of body Shakespearean retelling of the Orpheus and Eurydice story, but now the author is changing archetypes on me in a story that's very much about archetypes. And on top of this, I just didn't care all that much about the Crow's plans because in this story, the material world wasn't a real place. And also because the explanation about why it would be bad for the crow to rule over the earth is couched in extremely vague language. When Tolkien does this with Sauron, for example, we care very much about the fate of the Shire because we have spent some time there, and because Gandalf explains precisely what the inhabitants of the Shire will suffer if Sauron gets the ring and wins the war, and so we're invested in whether or not Sauron is going to be defeated— And ultimately, Allred just isn't on solid ground when he makes this move, and so it just doesn't work that well. And, uh, you know, I guess since I've wandered into talking about the strengths and weaknesses, we may as well formally enter that segment of the show. And really, this is for me the only weakness of the book. I I think the whole third act, which is where most of this plot takes place, could have been abandoned. Uh, Instead, Allred could have given us the conclusion to what is really built up in Acts 1 and 2, which is to say, the fisherman's quest to rescue his beloved from the underworld. And we actually do get an outline of this ending in the epilogue. And it seems like Allred had a lot of good ideas that he just didn't write because he wanted to write something that seemed topical in 2018. It it feels like the ending that he wrote to this book is not the ending he had planned out when he was developing this story, but that uh, it, it changed. His ideas about what the book should be changed over time. But even though this move disappointed me, even though I really wanted a third act that seemed like it grew out of the Orpheus and Eurydice plot a little bit more, I still really liked this book. And Allred does some fantastic things here, some really great things. For one, his prose is magical. I mean, literally magical, right? He knows how to make his world feel like it's the world of every fairy tale we've ever read. Some of this is about his language, and some of this is about the way that he blends different mythological, religious, and folkloric traditions together. Another practice of Allred's that I really loved is the incorporation of pop culture. Mostly, this comes in the form of borrowing lines from songs and other books and even movies. 
My favorite was a line from The Wrath of Khan. It's a great line, of course, but Allred definitely handles it and, and puts it in a context that adds some some humor to it. And he does this all over the place. And it's great. It's really awesome. And I think it would be fun to compile a list on the forum or, or at least talk about some of our favorites because I don't know, I think there might be uh, about a hundred of these strewn throughout the book. But this book's biggest strength is that it's funny. The recap and, and even the themes and motifs segment are a little light this episode because so much of the joy of reading The Ale House at the End of the World lies in the humor, right? It lies in the hilarity of this body Shakespearean love triangle. Allred has a real ear for jokey language, and it's just a, a delight. And if you like Neil Gaiman, if you like Terry Pratchett, I think you'll like this book too. So that's The Ale House at the End of the World, 300 pages boiled down into 20 minutes of me talking to you about it. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and, and talk with me about this book. There is an element of the story, it's a, a motif really, that I haven't talked about, and that's religion. And, and I mean religion as opposed to mythology here. Something that jumped out to me is that the monster who devoured the spirit realm in, in the backstory here is named Kiyama. Now, it is spelled differently, but this is the Arabic word for resurrection, and it specifically has to do with the last judgment, the, the end of the world in Islam. And of course, this monster has to be defeated, though I, I left off most of that plot in the recap. And this monster also is responsible for having devoured the old gods, the anthropomorphic animals of old. And this really feels to me like an allegory for monotheism devouring animism or replacing animism. And I would love to talk about what Allred is doing here. So if this interests you, please stop by the forum and, and let me know what you think he, he is doing with this motif, with this language here in the story. But on that note, that is going to do it for this episode, a fairly short one this time. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next month, we'll be reading A Song for Our Bone by Guy Gabriel Kay. This book was a massive part of my adolescence, and I am super excited to revisit it. And until next month, until we get to talk about our fantasy version of the Albigensian Crusade, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. <laughs>